Hi, this is our first ever podcast and we're taking this as an opportunity to update you on our planned video about Loch Ness. If you're a regular visitor to my website, which is www.angelablythe.com, you'll get most of this information on there, but with some lovely pictures as a bonus. Okay, settle back, turn out the lights if you can, and lock the doors. The video initially was going to document a new stage in our journey, as we would start to feature our travels around the further reaches of the country for our website and YouTube channel. We spend so much time on the road travelling to locations that it has become apparent that we spend more time in the car than actually sitting and enjoying where we are. Travelling with three unruly chihuahuas limits your options for last-minute bookings, so we started looking at camper vans, but they seem to be designed for other people rather than us. So while we look at buying a van and fitting it out for our own particular needs, we came up with the idea of an inflatable tent. Yes, it's inflatable. We looked at pop-up tents and we were just about to buy one and saw the glory that is an inflatable tent. Like garlic bread, we have been told it's the future. We once tried camping a long time ago. We went five miles down the road to the top of the moor and hated it. One of our family still bears the scars of that trip. So, to christen the tent, it seemed only natural to drive to the top of the country and try it out on the shores of Loch Ness. We started out early on Saturday morning and ended up in Gretna Green for about 9am. The plan was to move up Scotland, visiting about five locations for some photo shoots to fill up the stock. We made it to the first one, the very impressive Kelpies, which are just outside Falkirk. When we started looking at the background for this video, we were amazed about the number of water creatures and legends in Scotland, and most of them are in my last book. It seems that not only were the Kelpies attacking Saddleworth, but they have had quite a history around Loch Ness. We finished the Kelpies and started on the next location, which was to be Stirling Castle. But we began to notice the sky getting more threatening. And with the light going, we decided to push further north in the hope of the weather clearing up. That was the first warning we didn't pay attention to. The plan was to drive up the lock with a camera on the roof and pitch up the tent while waving happily to our new neighbours. Then do a quick movie showing how easy it all was while toasting marshmallows. Instead, it was like a scene from the first Jurassic Park movie where the storm hit. We had no choice as there was no way we were going to do another eight-hour drive back and as we say, three chihuahuas don't make it easy for you to pop into a bed and breakfast. So we experienced just how easy it is to put up an inflatable tent in a storm. To be honest, it wasn't that bad, and we managed it in about 20 minutes. We must have done it well, as the tent and all of us survived the night. To be honest, 
we still have a few kinks to iron out around the cooking. Dogs hogging the sleeping bags and probably a bed that doesn't make you feel like you're going to fall off and squash your dog if you move. The other bits that need looking into are probably more to do with weather forecasts and Google Earth as we found out that when we got here the 360 cam was a waste of time for the bit of Loch Ness we were in as it's all trees one side and rock the other and you very rarely see the lock from the road. We have to look at how to carry less stuff as we fill the car which really wasn't the point. We also hope to show you all of the fun things that we found which make life on the road more bearable but we'll add them as we go through our next videos. It stopped raining in time for us to pack up which was nice. Loch Ness is a fascinating tale so let's get started. The first recorded Loch Ness monster incident was 600 AD when Saint Columba forced a monster from the loch by invoking the name of God. There were also reports of sightings in 1600 and 1700. Actually, in 1771, people saw something in the loch described as a water kelpie. In 1885, there were reports of a strange beast in the lake, and again in 1912, which seems to tie into reports of sharks being seen on the west coast of Scotland. There were a few other mutterings of strange happenings in the area, but I think it's safe to say that it all really kicked off in May 1933 with the small report to the Inverness Courier of a strange beast being sighted off the shores of the loch. Just looking at a quick search across the newspapers at the time, there were 840 articles in 1933 about the monster, 3,321 in 1934 and 600 in 1935. It was big news. Hardly a day seemed to go by without another sighting or hunt being organised. If I were cynical, I would say that the fact that the person who made the report owned a hotel in Inverness might have had something to do with all this and that honestly was the opinion I started with. I also thought that the timing of the report was close to the release of the King Kong movie and it fed into a desire from the general public for any sort of monster feature. But having read through all the documentation on the reports, listening to a fascinating audiobook on the way up to the lock, I honestly can't say it's all hype. The tales of monsters started before 1933 and there have been many more since. Even scientists seem equally divided. Like anything, there have been so many witnesses, even multiple witnesses, that surely there must be something there. Working through all the hoaxes doesn't seem to help the cause, but you can be sure that the minute we say it's all lies, then Nessie will come out of the lock just to spite us. We didn't see anything, but then again, we didn't actually get to see the lock for about 12 hours with all the rain and mist. At one point, my husband stated that even if Nessie was down on the shore doing the Highland Fling, he wasn't going out in the rain. 
The main point of the trip was the Loch Ness Monster and the 360 drive around the loch. Plus, a little known place called Boleskine was going to be a little added sparkle for people not interested in water beasties. How wrong we were. The first thing to say is that if you are any way sensitive, please protect yourself if you decide to visit this location. The parish of Boleskine was formed in the 13th century and a kirk or church and graveyard were built in the parish around this time. A succession of ministers ran Boleskine Parish and would travel the area on horseback or on foot in all weather conditions. One minister, Thomas Houston, is said to have had an issue with having to lay the dead back into the ground after a local wizard tried to raise the corpses. Did you hear that? Zombies! Poor old Thomas was very dedicated, as he was also attacked by robbers and had his household and money plundered. His predecessor has also been brutally murdered. He also asked for help with the graveyard, as he wrote that people were just leaving bodies without any proper burial. Descriptively, he describes dogs fighting over bones of the departed before service. The graveyard is situated directly on the main military route of the Hanoverian forces to Inverness. One day, in 1745, a funeral was being held while a military transport was passing and one of the funeral attendees stole a loaf of bread from the cart and threw it to the dogs. This act of defiance led to the soldiers firing into the funeral party. Apparently, no one was injured, but it is said that you can still see the bullet holes in the gravestones. Another legend was that the church caught fire and burnt to the ground with all the congregation still inside. While we can't dispute this, we also can't find any reference to this incident, apart from some mentions of the ruin of the kirk in some early local guides. There is a small house in the graveyard, and this is the Mort House, which was a place where they could place the dead until they were buried to deter grave robbers. There's also meant to be a hidden passage in the graveyard, which has some links to witchcraft, but we can't find any real references. This now brings us back to Boleskine House, which by legend is meant to be built on the site of the burnt-out church and the dead congregation. Boleskine House was built around 1760 as a hunting lodge for the Honourable Archibald Campbell Fraser, 38th Chief of the Fraser Clan. Archie was the third son of Simon Fraser of Lovett, who was beheaded at the Tower of London, aged 80 years, on the 9th of April, 1747, for supporting the Jacobite Rebellion. He was the last man to be executed in this manner in Britain. The house remained in the Fraser family until 1899, when it was bought by the great beast himself, Alistair Crowley. Yes, Alistair Crowley. The story is 
that Crowley was looking for a magical house to perform the sacred magic of Abramelin the mage. His requirements for the house were that it was secluded, have a north opening door from an oratory room and a terrace that could be covered with fine river sand. This would create a lodge where the spirits could congregate. Now I'm sure that lots of houses would meet those requirements and after seeing what was left of it, we were curious as to why Crowley would choose this house, especially paying twice the asking price. However, Crowley's diary mentions that he knew Boleskin was already the centre of a thousand legends, and that even before he arrived, there was a fine crop of the regular Highland superstitions. One of them seemed to be the fact that the house was haunted by the rolling head of Simon Fraser. Many myths have developed around the house from the time of Crowley's ownership, which include a local butcher cutting off his own hand with a cleaver and dying after receiving a note from Crowley with a spell hidden on the reverse. During the ceremony, it is rumoured that Crowley stopped the ritual halfway through and supposedly left without dispelling the twelve kings and dukes of hell that he had summoned. Crowley himself, never one to admit a mistake, this time conceded that the ritual he had performed at Boleskine House had gotten out of hand. Again, from my perspective, even my husband knows to close things down. It's the first thing you are taught if you are just doing Reiki. I find the suggestion that the great beast just forgot a wee bit flimsy. Crowley's lodgekeeper, a total abstainer for 20 years, became raving drunk for three days and tried to kill his wife and children. That is my first shining reference. Crowley asked three Golden Dawn members to assist him. One refused to go to the house. One came, but mysteriously left without saying goodbye to anyone. And the third began to display symptoms of panic and strange fears, stating that there were presences in the place of an evil nature, and left. All of Crowley's dogs died, and his servants started becoming ill. All of Crowley's dogs died, and his servants started becoming ill. Crowley tried to combat this by using rituals, as he thought he was under attack from another magician. The house was then swarmed by a plague of beetles, which reportedly no expert was able to identify. Next, a workman who was at the house putting in central heating suddenly became maniacal and attacked Crowley's wife and had to be bundled into a cellar until the police arrived. Another of Crowley's servants suffered at the hands of the Boleskine demons when his ten-year-old daughter died suddenly at her desk at school and one year later his fifteen-month-old son died of convulsions on his mother's knee. Boleskine was eventually sold with some of Crowley's belongings on Friday the 12th of July 1918 for £2,500. 
The house was eventually acquired by retired Army Major Edward Eric Grant and his wife Nancy. On Tuesday the 8th of November 1960, he blew his own head off with a shotgun in Crowley's bedroom. There's a BBC documentary which has a bizarre interview with the housekeeper who found the body, laughing about giving a part of the Major's skull to his dog as a toy by mistake. The house is evil, wasn't finished yet. It was part of the largest post-war scandal of our time, which somehow seems to also be the least reported. Boleskin was to be turned into a piggery. The British actor George Sanders bought Boleskin with his business partner Dennis Lorraine and they planned to build a pig farm on the property. The venture failed and Dennis Lorraine was sent to prison for fraud. This scandal touched loads of famous people and there are reports that at the time it was as big a scandal as the Profumo affair. Apart from Wikipedia, getting George Raft and George Sanders mixed up, there are some fascinating aspects to this part of the Boleskine story. The house was chosen by Lorraine's estranged wife, who felt compelled to own it after meeting a relative of the Major in a book written by her son. The secret passageway between the house and the graveyard was confirmed, as he used to play in it. He also mentions that over time, his mother changed from someone who wanted to tidy the garden to someone who went on a path of self-destruction. There are reports that when the scandal hit, the pigs in the farm were supposedly left to die. Remember this bit. In 1971, Boleskine House was bought by Led Zeppelin guitarist Jimmy Page, who left his friend Malcolm Dent in the house as a caretaker. One of the stories sounds like something from House on the Borderlands by William Hope Hodgson. Dent was woken early one morning by the sound of something outside the bedroom door snorting, snuffling and banging. He sat terrified until the sun came up as he said, whatever was there, I have no doubt it was pure evil. The house is also linked to the curse of Led Zeppelin, which includes two or maybe three deaths, a string of bad luck and the eventual collapse of one of the biggest bands in the world. Talking of groups, an interesting fun fact is that Alistair Crowley's face is also on the collage of people on the front of the Beatles' Sgt Pepper album. What about that? Jimmy Page sold Boleskine House in 1991 and it remained in private hands until it mysteriously burned down. It also was the subject of a BBC documentary which according to the reports the producers had to call in an exorcist, deal with an invasion of beetles while filming in the graveyard, had lighting rigs blown out and were warned by various white witches that Crowley had put a curse on anyone looking into Boleskine. Oh dear. 
on the day we photograph what was left and what we could see from the road. Not really knowing the full story or at the time, we went home. Now my husband had a cold, so that didn't help. But basically, over the last two weeks, we've felt that we have had um, visitors. It got to the point that we have had to be burning sage and wearing talismans to get through. My husband, who was in no way a religious person, now has a collection of crosses around his neck. So what do we think of the whole Boleskine situation? Basically, something is there. We don't know what, but we have never had an experience like that before. I firmly believe that while Crowley made the situation worse, the location had issues before he came. From the accounts of people associated with Boleskine, the house chooses the people. Crowley and Lorraine both confirm that. Like the Overlook Hotel in The Shining, I believe the house or whatever forces are there amplify your worst instincts and fears. So what should we do? Of course, the only option for us is to return and get closer to the house and finish our video. We've booked the campsite and have written to the owners of Boleskine House for permission to actually go in and film there. I don't get put off easily. So if I don't make another post, then you know, the 12 Dukes of Hell, or whatever it is, have got to us. See you soon, mateys.